cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Experts. 
the deputy person will be born if they have a need for you, that is. If they don't have a need for you, you won't be born. And you'll be trained in a position to serve the world state. Look into the United Nations Charter, and the United Nations talks about this serving. It's all to do with service. Now, I'll be back after the following messages. We'll hope the music doesn't keep going in a loop. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt. Back with Cutting Through the Matrix. Now, before I forget, I should thank those people who have sent donations to keep me going because it does keep me going. That's all it does really keep me going. The printing of the books and all the rest of it uh, pretty well just pays for itself. The costs of postage and all the rest locked into it. For overseas, people uh, who order, remember, to tack on 28 or $29 at least for airmail if you're ordering all three books because that's what it costs for posting them by airmail. And also, the last time I was on, I mentioned someone caller talked about Tuesdays and why Tuesdays were so relevant with the stock market, etc., and uh, things happening on Tuesday and uh, major occurrences in the world. And tu- I mentioned about Thursday. I got Tuesday and Thursdays mixed up. Thursdays, Thursday for sure, but Tuesday is actually from Thursday, which is the God of War. So every day of the week really is to do with war, even Wednesday, because uh, you have it with Mercury. You have the, the, the Mercury, of course, is the is the, um, the, the messenger is also the saint for, for corporations and, or corporate interests and mercenaries, so merchants and mercenaries who, who go hand in hand in all ages, just to clear that up. But tonight I'm going to talk about the European Union because it's the precursor for the rest of the, the blocks, these big trading blocks to follow. And I'm going to read a little bit from Sir James Goldsmith's book. Sir James Goldsmith was a man who helped champion the British corporate interests for years. He was all for the Union uh, for many years and worked hard towards it. And he pulled out towards the end when he saw the direction in which it was going. And he formed a society to try to pull Britain back out of the Union. And he was just getting popular. He came across to the U.S. and spoke to the U.S. Senate warning them in one of the most eloquent speeches I've ever heard, a fantastic orator, warning them of all the dangers that lay ahead and what they'd go through if they had the NAFTA agreement, the GATT agreement go through. And all the senators agreed with them, but they all voted to go along with it anyway, which tells you who was putting money in their pockets, the big corporate interests. But James Goldsmith suddenly came down with a fast-acting cancer of, uh, I think it was a pancreas, a very popular one for assassinating people, and he died within about four or five weeks of diagnosis. In his book, it's called The Trap, 
Sir James Goldsmith does a question and answer with a man called Vez Misarovich, who was the economics editor of Le Figaro. And on page 68 of this book, I'll read a little bit here. This is what it said. This is what James Goldsmith says. Maastricht, that's where they signed the agreement for basically bringing the whole of Europe together under this fascist system. Maastricht seeks to create a supranational, centralized, bureaucratic state. And remember that the U.S. and Canada and Latin American countries are to follow suit. We're already on the way. It would destroy the pillars on which Europe was built as nations. It would convert Europe into one multicultural space in which national identities would be fused and sovereignty abandoned. It would coerce ancient European nations to merge into the ultimate artificial state. As George Orwell remarked, it's characteristic of intellectuals to pass over in incomprehension the dominant political passion of the age. Today that passion is a search for national identity, and this is the moment when European ruling elites are seeking to destroy the identity of every European nation. And here's the question that follows. How is it that the peoples of 12 European nations have agreed to this? And here's Sir James Goldsmith's answer. The European, this is a man who was involved in the setting up. Now listen to what he says. The European Union was built in secret, not through carelessness or casualness, but in a deliberately planned and skillfully executed manner. That's right from the horse's mouth. Claude Chesson, former French Minister of Foreign Affairs and a member of the European Commission from 1985 to 1989, described the mechanism in an interview in Le Figaro on 7th of May 1994. He explained proudly that the European Union could only have been constructed in the absence of democracy. I'll, I'll say that again for the hard of hearing and the hard of thinking. He explained proudly that the European Union could only have been constructed in the absence of democracy. And he went on to suggest that the present problems were the result of having mistakenly allowed a public debate on the merits of the Treaty of Maastricht. So it leaked out into the public and had a debate on it, and that was a mistake according to them, which we kept secret. Then the British newspaper, The Guardian, lodged a case before the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg complaining of the secrecy in which European decisions are taken. Lawyers for the European Council of Ministers responded by stating to the judges that there is no principle of community law which gives citizens the right to EU documents. So the average citizen is not allowed to have access to any of the European Commission's or Union's documents. This is total fascism. He went on to make the astounding claim that the low heads of government had repeatedly called for more openness in the EU affairs. Their declarations were of an eminently political nature and not binding on the community institutions. So they asked the judges to ignore the repeated declarations at EU summit meetings in the past two years in favor of greater openness. Statements by the 12 heads of government were no more than policy orientations and had no binding effect. So you have no say once you've taken over into this big conglomerate, and that's all it is, is a corporate conglomerate, the fascist system. You have no, no say whatsoever into anything. You can't even get hold of the records or anything they're doing in secret. He's on to say this belief that the uh, nomenclatura 
knows best and that the public is no more than a hindrance explains why there now exists a profound and dangerous divorce between European societies and their governing elites. This is from a guy who was one of the elites. He doesn't mind saying it, and he calls them the governing elites. He says, what was done in secret? That was the question. Here's the answer. Quietly and progressively, power was transferred to the 17 unelected technocrats. Now, technocrats, a technocrat is someone who's been involved in politics and often they're, they're unelected, they're appointed. And we all have these characters at the high positions. The technocrats, who were the members of the European Commission, originally power had been entrusted to the Council of Ministers, which consists of the elected national heads of state or the representatives, as they were more interested in national policies than in the creation of Europe. Bit by bit, the technocrats of the Commission were allowed to take over executive power. Now, he says they were allowed to take over executive power. He's telling you uh, that there's a higher authority here that, that selects these characters and puts them in placements in those positions. They have been granted the monopoly right to propose new initiatives for the development of the European Union. Their ambition is not modest. Jacques Delors, outgoing president of the Commission, declared that in future... 80% of all laws governing economic, social, and fiscal affairs of each European nation would originate in Brussels and therefore from pro proposals initiated by the Commission. As would certainly be the case, this rush towards technocratic hyper-centralization has created a Europe which is hopelessly weak externally and unable to influence the course of world events. Internally, the power of the technocracy is employed to destroy sovereignty, freedom, and self-reliance. And he's asked, what, how do you define a technocrat? It's usually a technocrat as an ex-politician or a civil servant. He is unelected, virtually impossible to dislodge during his term of employment, and has been granted extensive executive and even legislative power without popular mandate and without being directly answerable to the people whose interests, theoretically, he's supposed to represent. So that was from Sir James Goldsmith, a very good book called The Trap. Worth reading, you can get it pretty cheap, I'm sure, on Amazon or somewhere. And that's from one of the guys who made a speech at the U.S. Senate, one of the best speeches ever, about an hour, over an hour long, warning them of all the pitfalls, what would happen to the people of the U.S. and Canada and Latin America if they amalgamated and copied the European Union. What he didn't mention, of course was that the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute for International Affairs that was set up a long time ago, 100 years ago pretty well, was set up to do exactly this, to turn the world into a three-part trading block. And they place their members, they put in the technocrats at the heads of all these big organizations who work diligently their whole lives long towards the amalgamation process the big foundations back them up. In fact, many of the foundations train them and put them out there. They're unelected, and we have never had, really, democracy. We simply live one long business plan because that's what the world is, a long, long business plan. Once again, this goes all the way back. If you trace it through history, you can find people like John Dee, who was an advisor at the court of Queen Elizabeth I, he was also a spy for Queen Elizabeth I in his foreign tours of Europe. And his 
His designation was 007, by the way. John Dee wrote about the, the British Empire, he called it, and how it would be based upon free trade. Those who would join would get special grants and be given most privileged nation trading status, a term that was given to China just before Britain handed Hong Kong back to China. And on it goes. Big business plan. The back after the following messages. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lie. Hi, folks. Everybody I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just bringing you up to speed on past events which helped shape this future that we now live in present that we now live in and the future and how they've trained scientifically, scientific indoctrination, whole masses of people, whole nations of people to go out and play like little children and gorge themselves on entertainment and have fun while they're steamrolling ahead with this incredible totalitarian plan of theirs and people are oblivious to what's going on They're just like little children, and that's what socialism is. Socialism is perpetual childhood. They're big brother or big daddy, really, because that's what we have today. Big daddy, the bringer of all good things, is in charge, and he and his buddies will decide uh, how to take care of all your problems for you. That's how we've been trained, that these people who come out of special wombs, not like the rest of us, commoners, uh, are somehow better fitted to to stay in charge and, and fix it all for you. They have weighty problems, things which you'd never understand, so just go out and play. That's, just, that's what it's all about. And while they're doing that, they've been having wars all over the world for over 50 years. Over 50 years. Truman, in 1950, had a meeting with the, the top members of the Congress, and they had decided that... The U.S. economy prior to World War II was only relieved because of World War II. That's what pulled America out of the Depression. It pulled Britain out as well and most of the European countries. And the Depression was caused primarily by the failure of some German banks because the German nation was supposed to keep forking out money from World War I to all the victors, forking out money eternally and keeping their people in a state of utter depression and poverty. So World War II came along. It was inevitable. All the signers of the agreements during World War I knew that. Germany had no option but to go under and starve to death or or fight their way out of it. And so along comes World War II, a predicted event, uh, helped and financed by the way from the West, as always, because the big corporations who are part of the fascist war machine were all involved in the creation of IG Farben that was the war machine, that was the war industry for Germany. And that pulled the U.S. and other countries out of the war, then borrow like crazy on their great-great-grandchildren's backs, because that's how you pay back compound interest intergenerationally. In 1950, Truman and the rest of them realized that without war, 
America could go back into a slump since over half of its economy was derived from production for war. Therefore, they had began to have wars on everything and they got heavily involved in wars all over Latin America uh, to make sure that the system that they foresaw, remember the plan again was to make a world society uh, under the, the Council on Foreign Relations, this socialist controlled society, and they could only bring it about by having constant continual wars all over the world and eliminate competition and being good fascists and corporate fascists, that's what corporations do. You eliminate the competition. And that also meant peoples who would arise demanding their rights, their freedoms, and better working conditions, or money, or even the right to some property to live on. That's why they were all over Latin America calling them communists and killing them, whole villages of them, for 50-odd years. And then all over the world, and voila, in the absence of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall goes down, Margaret Thatcher gives a speech saying that the next major wars will take place in the Middle East against these radical uh, fundamentalists, she called them. But she also broadened that to include all fundamental religious types. So people back in the U.S. should think about that. So they knew it was coming. They've got to have a war on the go somewhere at some time or all the time. And right now, as we're going through all of this, this uh, practice for uh, general takeover of the military and police and all the civilian agencies, Operation Topoff, etc., uh, we're, we're, we're seeing that this is not just nationwide. This is happening in different countries across the world. All these agencies and civilian agencies and emergency management agencies are now pulling off the little stunts to see how well they can communicate with each other how they can direct traffic flows, how they can get the public to cooperate with them. And they're even letting off some smoke fumes, big fumes to simulate dirty bombs. And what they've told the public is, this is to watch which way the wind blows it to see what the coverage area would be. Well, how on earth would they know which way the wind is going to go when a real thing happened? It's all to get us used to an idea that there's a war going on, you see because they must have a war for controlling us, and fascists don't know any other way to run a system but by, the, let's say, the iron fist on the public, the public being just animals to be led to the slaughter eventually. There's a book out called Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, written by Anthony C. Sutton, who was not a conspiracy freak. He was born in London, educated in the University of London in Gottingen and California. He became a citizen of the United States, from, came from Britain. He was a research fellow at the, at the Hoover Institute for War, Revolution and Peace at Stanford, California, from 1968 to 1973. Now I'll be back after the following messages with more information on his books. Well worth reading. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows. 
I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I'm talking about Professor Anthony Sutton, a man who was a research fellow at the Hoover Institution for War, Revolution, and Peace at Stanford, California, from 68 to 73. And this man wrote a series of books going in to who financed the the Soviets' system, the Bolshevik Revolution, and Hitler. And lo and behold, we find the same big institutions, the big foundations, and the same big corporations. So this book I'm going to read a little bit from is called Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Very revealing book. Uh, So much of it is revealing. It's hard to pick a page from. There's so much there. It's from a page 120. And it ties in with the Great Depression I was talking about that was pulled out of, we've all pulled out of because World War II came along and countries suddenly could order billions from the international bankers. So he says, Roosevelt's New Deal and Hitler's New Order. Now, Hitler called it the New World Order and they simply called it the New Deal in the U.S. That's what it really meant, that little Masonic term, the New Deal. And he says, Harmer Schacht, Schacht was a big uh, banking company as well, challenges post-war Nuremberg interrogators with the observation that Hitler's New Order program was the same as Roosevelt's New Deal program in the United States. Now, there's quite the comment that came out of the Nuremberg trials. Interrogators understandably snorted and rejected the observation. However, a little research suggests that not only are the two programs quite similar in content, but the Germans had no trouble in observing the similarities. There is in the Roosevelt Library a small book presented to FDR by Dr. Helmut Majors in December 1933. That's M-A-G-E-R-S, Majors or Majors, 1933. On the flyleaf of this presentation copy is written the inscription. To the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, profound admiration of his conception of a new economic order with devotion for his personality, the author, Baden, Germany, November 9th, 1933. And here's FDR's reply to this admiration for his new economic order. Washington, December 19th, 1933. My dear Dr. Majors, I want to send you my thanks for the copy of your little book about me and the New Deal. Though, as you know, I went to school in Germany. Uh-huh. I could speak German with considerable fluency at one time, I'm reading your book not only with great interest, but because it will help my German. Very sincerely yours, FDR, etc. The New Deal, or the New Economic Order, was not a creature of classic liberalism. It was a creature of corporate socialism. Same as Germany. Same as Britain had at that time. Big business, as reflected in Wall Street, strive for a state order in which they could control industry and eliminate competition. And this was the, in the heart of FDR's New Deal. The company called General Electric, for example, is prominent in both Nazi Germany and the New Deal, the U.S. system. German Electric, uh, General Electric was a prominent financier of Hitler and Nazi Party, and AEG also financed Hitler both directly and indirectly through Osram. International General Electric in New York, was a major participant in the ownership and direction of both AEG and Osram as a German uh, General Electric. General Swope, Owen Young, and A. Baldwin of General Electric in the United States were directors of the German firm AEG. 
However, the story does not stop at General Electric and financing of Hitler in 33. In a previous book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, the author identified the role of General Electric in the Bolshevik Revolution and the geographic location of American participants as at, listen to this, 120 Broadway, New York City. The executive offices of General Electric were also at 100 Broadway when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was working in Wall Street, his address was 120 Broadway. In fact, Georgia Warm Springs Foundation, the FDR Foundation, was also located at 120 Broadway. The prominent financial backer of an early Roosevelt Wall Street venture from 120 Broadway was Gerard Swope of General Electric. And it was Swope's plan that became Roosevelt's New Deal. The fascist plan that Herbert Hoover was unwilling to foist on the United States. In brief, both Hitler's New Order and Roosevelt's New Deal were backed by the same industrialists and in content were quite similar. That is, they were both plans for a corporate state. Corporate state, folks. That's what you live under. It's very evident in the left wing and the right wing. They're both wings that belong to the same bird, and the bird is corporate fascism interwoven families on the left and the right at the top. So which bunch of multimillionaires do you want to vote for? He's on to say there were then both corporate and individual bridges between FDR's America and Hitler's Germany. The first bridge was the American IG Farben, big umbrella corporation. American affiliate of IG Farben, the largest German corporation, on the board of American IG, because we had in the States too, you see, that Paul Warburg, of the Bank of Manhattan and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The second bridge was between International General Electric, a wholly owned subsidiary of General Electric Company, and its partly owned affiliate in Germany, AEG. Gerald Swope, who formulated the FDR's New Deal, was chairman of IGE on the board of AEG. The third bridge was between Standard Oil of New Jersey, that's the Rockefellers, and Vacuum Oil and its wholly owned German subsidiary, Deutsche Amerikansch Gesellschaft. The, German, the chairman of Standard Oil of New Jersey was Walter Tegel of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He was a trustee of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Georgia Warm Springs Foundation and appointed by FDR to a key administrative post in the National Recovery Administration. These corporations were deeply involved in both the promotion of Roosevelt's New Deal and the construction of the military power of Nazi Germany. Putzi and Stegel's role in the early days up to the mid-1930s, anyway, was an informal link between the Nazi elite and the White House. After the mid-1930s, when the world was set on the course for war, Putzi's importance declined, while American big business continued to be represented through such intermediaries as born Kurt von Schroeder, attorney Westrick, and membership in Himmler's circle of friends. This is a, a fascinating book. He has all the data and the proof in the back, and it's just uh, astounding to realize that uh, something that I always knew really, that the countries that went into fight supposedly uh, national socialism, and one supposedly came out of it as national socialist countries, because the governments had taken over massive rights to rural farmers and all the infrastructure of the nation. Britain was the same. I shall laugh at Winston Churchill's replays of his old speeches when he told the British public to go off and fight to retain their way of life and their system 
their ancient cherry system, while his own secretary released a book called The Fringes of Power and admitted that, that to his own particular peer class, he was celebrating the fact that out of this war in Europe would come a united Europe, the dream that it had for ages. So we're all conned down the river, all of us, and all those poor guys that go off to all these wars to fight for this socialist order uh, n- never really figure it out afterwards. They're too proud of having done their bit. They can't see the big picture, and they don't see where it's all going. And there's no doubt about it, even with Cecil Rhodes, who started up the Round Table, or, or started up the, um, the Cecil Rhodes Society that was meant to take over all the corporate interests and mineral rights of the world, coupled with, with Lord Alfred Milner's group, the Round Table Society, that eventually merged together with Cecil Rhodes and became the League of Nations, and they became the United Nations. They had it all planned then to bring in this world socialist state, a state run by the fascists at the top, those who deemed themselves worthy of ruling the lessers, and also the, the commoners would be run with masses of bureaucracies in a communistic fashion. The marriage of fascism and communism, that's what it's all about. The right and the left come together. Planned a hundred odd years ago, probably longer actually, at least the records that we can now get access to are a hundred years old. That's what Alvin Toffler's book, The Third Way, is all about. The coming together of the two systems. And if you want to read Gorbachev's last speech to the Politburo, look up the Toronto Sun, go back in its records, and check Eric Margolis's uh, write-up on Gorbachev's last speech to them. Because he says to them, you'll hear that communism is dead, don't believe it. We're simply moving into the next phase. What does it mean by that? Well, go back into the writings of Lenin. Lenin said the dictatorship will last about 70 years, and then we shall go merge into the West the system that will come out of it will be not quite capitalist and not quite socialist. What they're talking about is this new, it's actually global socialism, a globalist fascist system at the top running the whole kit and caboodle. That's what it's all about. And they have written about it. The big players wrote about it. It's just that they haven't taught it in school. They've kept us all in the dark. They've taught everyone to be nice little social citizens, have a group think talk about what's on television, and just play ourselves forever, and purr like cats that have been fed and well-stroked. That's how we've been trained. This is what Aldo Huxley talked about, the methods into the Brave New World, with his book that came out after it, which was Brave New World Revisited. He was quite confident through scientific means and scientific education, all of their plans could be brought about could literally, scientifically train billions of people across the planet not to notice the direction in which they were going. You could be trained to believe that everything that happened scientifically, where science would take us, uh, was all quite natural by simply putting it out in front of us, putting it into movies to make it exciting, and, and we'd all go along with it. And unfortunately, so far, it's worked. He also talked about the ultimate destruction of the last vestige of the family unit, especially between male and female. Now you have new redefined families of all kinds, but they've been very successful with that too. 
men really have been neutered and they're not men anymore. They sit and adopt the image that's given to them by television and pushed by the culture at the top. They pretend they just love sports and think about nothing else, twig beer and keep their mouths shut because, after all, all the comedies say that they're dumb, stupid creatures that are kept around as pets by any women who actually stay with them. And that's what they've adopted. They've adopted a role projected by the media and the entertainment business. And unfortunately, uh, the marriage uh, system is almost kaput. So you destroy the family unit, you then separate the child from the family, and as Lord Bertrand Russell said, that we always believed we'd have to eventually take away the children altogether at birth from their mothers and never allow them to know who their parents were in order to recondition them into a brand new system. But by using experimental schools, he said, we found that through scientific indoctrination at kindergarten, the parental influence won't work on the child. It'll just bounce off the child. The scientific indoctrination would be stronger. Well, lo and behold, that's happened too. And a couple of years ago, when there was a strike of daycare workers in Ontario and maybe other parts of Canada, the women were in the streets with placards demanding the big brother, you know, the big daddy there, the government, uh, takes care of this for them. So here you have them demanding the very thing that the elitists wanted a long time ago. The mothers are demanding that the state, the state take care of their children's for them, their child, their child's for them, to get all this going because they had to get to work. And when they split up the family unit, it was not because they like women, they don't like women at all. It was to double the tax base for one and to destroy the family unit for number two. And so there's no one at home to have parental influence over the child who might give them contaminated ideas. And that's the terms which they use at the top. Contamination of ideas must not be passed on, meaning old-fashioned values. For those who have grown up watching all of this, it's been quite the study, quite the study to understand it, to read about it, and watch it being introduced so slickly that those who are targeted don't know they're targeted. They just go along with it, thinking that government is so wonderful and cares about them. They believe all these pithy little speeches that are made, and they soak it up. And now they demand that the state takes care of their children for them. Whose child is it anyway, they say. A few years ago, the United Nations came out with the laws of the child, or the rights of the child. And being good creatures that we are, no one complained because it sounds good. That's the fuzzy language they use. Because we're like children, children are nice, so children should have rights. It wasn't until it was all passed and put through. As always, when people looked into it, they found it had nothing to do with what they thought it did they found out that the child had all the rights and the parents had none. That's by the state itself. That's how these things are put through. They fool us at every single turn, and very few people realize it. Now, as I say, almost a whole world are doing these little quiet, fairly quiet, emergency preparedness exercises because they must terrify the whole world into giving up the last vestiges of their rights to go into a controlled, dictated, dictatorial society. 
That's what all of this is about. When they contained the Iron Curtain at the ring around Russia, the Soviet system, Stalin had to find enemies within because really there were no more enemies without. And to maintain power in that kind of system, you must create enemies. And so they were looking for terrorists across, or, you know, they're looking for blue bloods under every bed. In the West, they were looking for reds under the bed. That was the term they used at the time. So you always find enemies within. And now with the, this rush towards mandatory psychological evaluation, lifelong, ongoing, they're going to find out that, oh, geez, so many people are, are actually terrorists and didn't know it. And that's how it's going to be portrayed on the media. They put a new social work department to rehabilitate you and to right-think from wrong-think and all of this kind of stuff. That's the kind of world we're going through right now while the media is giving us utter trivia, utter tripe and trivia. And they've even resurrected O.J. Simpson again just to keep us preoccupied with, with the rubbishy trivia. They're also going about this guy, Obama, however his name is, that's going to run for the Democrats, and on about him being related to Cheney. Well, who cares? Eighth cousin removed, apparently. But why not keep it all in the family? They always did. I'll be back after the following messages. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Hey folks, Everybody knows I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Now I think we have a caller still on the line. Is it Don from Oregon? Are you there? Yes, sir. Alan, I'm, I'm here, and uh, you are speaking well and in good form tonight. And I appreciate your your efforts. And I just wanted to read a few things to further corroborate and validate uh, what you're saying. It's a page out of Bouvier's Law Dictionary of 1914. I'll read the first paragraph, if it's okay. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. This is about the Potter Familius a, a, in, a, in civil Roman law. Uh, this was a position uh, in order to give a correct idea of what was understood in the Roman law by this term, Potter familius, it is uh, <clears throat> proper to refer briefly to the artificial organization of the Roman family. I'll say that again. The artificial organization of the Roman family. Yeah. The greatest moral phenomena in the history of the human race. Mm -hmm. That's right. <clears throat> the uh, Comprehensive term potter or a familia embraces both persons and property, money, land, houses, slaves, children, all constitute part of this artificial family. That's correct. This ju uh, judicature entity, the legal uh, petromy, family, this uh, which was inclusive vested in a chief or potter familius, 
who alone was uh, and who belongs to himself was sui juris. Mm-hmm. Yep. So well, the, they also used the symbol yeah, in Roman the law that of, far back. Used a symbol of the fasci as well. Yeah. And uh, the, if you look at the congressional hall when they give their speeches, either side of the, the, the president and right on the left, you see the fasci standing up there. Mm-hmm. The U.S. was created on the fascist system. Yeah. yeah. And state is it just another word for condition. Yes, and so also this the founding, artificial condition. The founding fathers stated that they, would, they were going to copy their system on Rome. It was the best one that they could find. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you wonder why all those symbols are there. There's the fasci in, in the congressional hall on either side of those people. And they've run, the corporate interests have run the United States since its foundation. Not the people's rights and interests, but the corporations. And uh, they run the economy, and they realize that your economy is actually the entity that gives you all of your laws. Mm-hmm. When you kill someone, they put you away. It's not because you killed someone. It's because you took a taxpayer out of the system. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're going to get punished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all based on commerce. A friend of mine uh, aptly stated one time that uh, commerce is war masquerading as peace. Well, that's what we're in today. We're in one of the biggest war ever, and it's the last leg of their journey. Thanks for calling. And for Hamish and myself, up here in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.